are here. Uh, we are in this uh, final section it, we have been doing in the Gospel of Matthew. This will be our last lesson for a while, and Matthew will come back to it in, in, in a few months as we've been zeroing in on this section where Jesus gives these uh, very hard sayings in the in the Gospel of, of Matthew. What is almost hard to believe in, in, in one sense is that here we are in Matthew chapter 20, and we are at the final days of Jesus' life. Now, you would think in so much more material ahead to read in the Gospel of Matthew that we might be months or years away from that. But you will notice in verse 17 of Matthew 20 that it says that Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. This is the last time he's going up to Jerusalem. This is his final time that he's going to come there with his disciples. And it leads to this important occasion to teach and remind his disciples about what is going to happen when they come to Jerusalem this time. And the details that, that Jesus gives about his death, I think, are absolutely fascinating. And there are more details here than the other times that Jesus has mentioned his upcoming death and resurrection. You will notice that the details are not, hey guys, we're going to go to Jerusalem and it's not going to go well for me and I'm going to be killed and then I'm going to be raised three days later. I want you to notice all of the details that Jesus lays out. He says in verse 18, I'm going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, so the religious leaders, those Jewish leaders there, the Sanhedrin. And then he says, and they're going to condemn him to death. This isn't going to go well when they have me on trial. I am going to be condemned and it's going to be a, a death condemnation. But then notice what he says next. They're not going to be the ones who are going to kill me. Verse 19, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And then he describes, and I'm going to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. I want you just to see. Jesus knows every single detail of what's about to happen. This is not Jesus coming to Jerusalem and going, well, I'm really surprised that things haven't been going very well. I'm really just shocked that people are not receiving me like I thought they would. Here he is telling his disciples for the final time as they are going to make their way up to Jerusalem. Here as verse 17 says, they're going their way up. Chapter 21 opens with him there in Jerusalem. He has arrived. And telling them, here's how it's all going to play out. The Jewish leaders will reject me, condemn me to death, hand me over to the Gentile leaders. They're going to mock me, flog me, crucify me, and then I will be raised from the dead three days later. And I mean, simple point here. Only God can do this. Only God knows all the details of exactly to the precision of death and events that are going to happen. Here's how it's all going to play out. I don't want you to be surprised about the things that are going to happen to me when we come to Jerusalem. Now, this leads to a really interesting, I don't know if it's fair to say interruption, or side point, or it, maybe it's not a side point at all, but maybe some spiritual perception. Notice what happens in verse 20. 
It says in verse 20, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say to these two sons of mine, or say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your kingdom. Now, initially, that feels really jarring, doesn't it? Here is Jesus going, okay, this is the final time, guys. We're on our way to Jerusalem. I want you to know what's going to happen. Going to be rejected, handed over to the Gentiles, mocked, flogged, crucified. And then in the midst, you can just imagine the, the weight of that discussion, that you have the mother of James and John coming up to Jesus and saying, okay, so when you come into your kingdom, would you make sure my boys are right there at your right hand and your left hand on your throne. (laughs) And I want you to notice that the next statement by Jesus in verse 22 is not, you know, oh, foolish woman, your mind is on physical things, and how dare you talk like that, and you've completely messed up the vibe of my teaching right now as I'm trying to get across to you my death. I, I do think she has a spiritual awareness here. If we're coming up to Jerusalem for the last time then to some extent she understands it's time for his glory. It's time for his enthronement. It's time for him to take his rightful place on the throne. And when you take your rightful place on the throne, I want my two boys to be there with you. (laughs) And I think it's interesting that she has a grasp of something, that this is something important, that this isn't just simply, oh, he's going to go and he's going to be rejected and die. But she understands that through this, there is going to be glory. And through this, there's going to be enthronement. And Jesus is going to come into his kingdom. And she has a concern then for her sons. And that's why I think it's also in verse 22 that Jesus is not going to correct her in this and say, oh, no, I'm not coming into glory after this. You've got the timing all wrong. No, I'm not going to sit on my throne or anything like that. He doesn't correct even uh, her understanding about the things that are going to happen. Notice what Jesus says in verse 22. You do not know what you are asking. I want you to think about that for a minute. As you have this mother on behalf of her sons, other accounts say the sons wanted to ask this too. So it wasn't like that these two men are like, oh, mom, I can't believe this. They were obviously in on this as well. And his response is, you don't know what you're asking. Now, if you think about it, sure, they know what they're asking. We want to be in glory with you. We want to sit at your right hand and your left hand and you come into your kingdom and you take your rightful place on the throne. But what Jesus is getting at in this is you don't understand the means by which this is going to happen. You're asking about exaltation and glory and sitting on the throne with me and belonging in my kingdom but you don't understand the way that is, this is going to happen. And I want you to notice what Jesus says about that in verse 22. When he says there in verse 22, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? That's quite a question. Now, usually in the scriptures, there are two metaphors for cups. You either will hear about a 
cup of blessing that God is giving and reference of, of the, the pouring out of what God is going to do in his favor toward his people. And then you will also read about a cup of suffering and judgment that is going to happen. We even in our Revelation class just read about that this morning of making them drink from the cup. And there's an imagery of suffering and judgment that is entailed in that. And obviously Jesus in this context is not talking about, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and it's going to be a great blessing and you want to drink that cup with me. The context is, I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to be rejected and condemned to death and handed over to the Gentiles and I'm going to be flogged and I'm going to be mocked and I'm going to be crucified. That's my cup. Are you able to drink that? Is the question that Jesus has for these disciples. Now I want you to just think about if you were in the disciples shoes for that moment. And here you are walking with him on the way to Jerusalem. And these two boys along with their mother is asked the question about belonging with Jesus in the kingdom. And Jesus' response is, are you able to drink the same cup of suffering that I'm going to drink? Are you able to drink the cup of mocking? Are you able to drink the cup of flogging? Are you able to drink the cup of crucifixion? What would you answer? I want you to be astounded that they say we're able. You have just told us what you are about to go through. You are going to die an excruciating death. And Jesus wants to know, are you willing to do that with me? And they say, yes. And I want you to notice that Jesus in verse 23 does not turn around and go, well, you can't do that. I know you think you can, but you know, it's too much and you have no idea what you're signing up for. I want you to notice in verse 23, he says, that's exactly right. That's what's going to happen. If you want to be in glory with me, then you're going to have to drink the same cup that I'm drinking. Are you able to do that? They say, yes, we are. And Jesus goes, good, because that's what's going to happen. And you just read the scriptures and you know that's what happens. You don't get very far into the book of Acts and James is killed by Herod. Oh. Did he drink the cup that Jesus drank? Yep. And we've been studying the book of Revelation in our Sunday morning Bible class. Where's John as he writes this? Exiled on an island for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Is he drinking the cup? And Jesus drank. He is. Jesus says, are you willing to suffer with me? They raise their hand and say, yes, we are. And he says, well, you're going to endure it. You're going to experience the same suffering as me. But I want you to notice how at end of verse 23, Jesus says, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant for it is for those to whom it has been prepared by, by my father. That's an interesting answer with that. Now, here's the thing that I think is really useful about how we are going through books of the Bible is that if you parachute it into this paragraph right here, 
you might think that Jesus is saying, so there are two spots and it's not for me to decide who gets the two spots. Uh, Maybe it'll be you guys, maybe it won't, but that's up for the father to decide. But do you remember what the prior paragraph was that we talked about last week where Peter asked the question, we have given everything up to follow you. What will be for us? And Jesus describes sitting on thrones and receiving a hundredfold because you have given everything up. But then he tells a parable in chapter 20 that goes about describing how everyone who comes into this kingdom receives that reward. And I think that's what Jesus is saying right here. You're concerned about particular position and place. But notice he says that glory is assigned For all who are going to come in. He says it in verse 23. But for those to whom it has been prepared by the Father. And I would say to you. Who he's prepared those places to the Father. For all who come to him. There is not a distinguishing. That's what the whole paragraph and parable of chapter 20. Verses 1 through 16 was all about. Remember the parable was about those who had given up so much and they're complaining about the late day workers who are receiving the exact same reward. And so context is very important. And what Jesus is saying is you're not getting an upper leg here. You're not going to have a better chair when you come into my kingdom. Now, I think what's interesting about this is that doesn't end the sequence. <laughs> if you'll notice verse 24 that verse 24 does not, does not then go about and say, and the disciples turn to the other two, those, those other two and go, I'm telling you what, you guys, can't you be a little bit more spiritual? You know, you guys should be a little bit more humble. I mean, come on. I can't believe that you guys would ask a question like that. You put your mom up to something like that. It's ridiculous. I want you to notice that it says there in verse 24, they're indignant. And this, as well as the other gospel accounts, give the implication that that was something they wanted to ask for themselves. It is something that they have argued about with Jesus on many, many occasions. They have repeatedly argued, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And sometimes Jesus will even stop and, hey, what were you guys talking about? (laughs) And get that exposed. They have in their mind this need for exaltation and greatness. And I want you to notice how Jesus puts his finger on that in verse 25. In verse 25, it says that Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. In essence, you know why the world wants exaltation and power and glory? To tell people what to do. That's why. You know why people like authority? Because they want to tell everybody else what to do. You want to know why they want glorification? So they can elevate themselves. You want to know why they want exaltation? They want to put themselves first and put everybody else down. He says that's what the world does. But I want you to hear the words of verse 26. That shall not be with you. That's not supposed to be with the people of God. Can I just say how sad it is how often people claim to be followers of God 
and want glory and exaltation and authority and honor so that they can use it on other people. How often you see leaders who claim to be followers of Christ do the very thing that Jesus said they're not supposed to do. He says the people of the world domineer, lord it over, use their authority. He said that's not supposed to be you. That's not why you will have that. Verse 26, whoever wants to be great, then you need to be a servant. Verse 27, whoever would be first among you, be a slave. You're concerned about glory and exaltation in the kingdom of God. Here's how it comes. It comes by lowering yourself. It comes by serving. It doesn't come from telling people what to do. It doesn't come from having a place of authority. It doesn't come from making sure you're in charge. That's the way the world looks at it. And I think this is such an important message that is being given to us here. The disciple of Jesus does not care about greatness. The disciple of Jesus does not care about being an authority. The disciple of Jesus does not care about having a say. Jesus says that's worldly thinking. And unfortunately, what we have the tendency to do is think about authority, meaning we're going to tell people what to do when Jesus says greatness is found in serving. You want to belong to Jesus and you want glory in his kingdom and you want to sit next to him and enjoy the reward then serve. Don't lord over people. Don't seek greatness. And I think this is such a beautiful picture that is given here. Because notice how Jesus rounds it out with his own example in verse 28. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. If there is anybody who could walk around and say, I have authority and so you all need to bow the knee. I'm in charge. I have a say and I'm great and I'm glorious and you're not. So get with it. It would be Jesus. You'd say, all right, whatever you say, you're God. Okay. And notice that Jesus says, I didn't come to do that. You don't see me walking around saying, where's my entourage? Where are my PR people? Where's my agent? Where are the people who serve me? Where are my minions? Where are my peons? Serve me. Somebody get me a drink. Make sure my M&Ms are good. It's unbelievable how our world acts. I'm in charge, so you got to wait on me hand and foot. Jesus says, I didn't do that. Not only did he not come to be served, notice he doesn't even take a neutral position. He says, I came to serve. Here's what Jesus is teaching. And here's what Jesus is showing. The reason for authority is to use it to serve others. See, in the world, authority is about making people do what you want. 
And Jesus says, being a disciple means using authority and using glory to serve. And friends, this is such an important application. Why are shepherds given authority in the church? To tell everybody what to do. No. They are to serve with the authority that is given to them. Why are preachers and teachers given authority? To tell everybody what to do? No. That's the way the world thinks about it. They're given authority to serve. Why are deacons given authority in a church? To tell everybody what to do? No. They're given that authority to serve. Friends, that's true even in the home. That's true even in the home. Husbands, what are you doing? You're serving your family. You're giving your life. You think about Ephesians 5. Jesus is used as the very connection. I want you to love her like Christ loved the church. Well, what did Christ do? This text right here. He used his glory and he used his authority to serve. And any mentality that looks at authority and says, I'm in charge, do what I say, I'm the boss, do, 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 is not what Jesus says is the picture of why we have authority. We use any role of authority and any power and any glory and any exaltation to serve and for nothing more. I don't have time, but you go read 1 Peter 5. Peter says the very thing. He tells the shepherds, you're not lording it over the flock, but you're living as an example. You're helping the sheep. You're serving them. It has always been the mission of service. That is always the picture of why we are here. We are here to serve. And if there's no clearer picture of that, it is certainly in verse 28. If we are to walk in the footsteps of our Savior and follow the image of Christ, he says, I didn't come to be served. And neither do we. But to serve. And to give our lives. I'll quickly look at verses 29 through 34, just because I don't think this is an out-of-place event in Matthew's recording, but an example of this truth. Verse 29, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in compassion, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Is it to love this this evidence? Here's here's these blind men crying out for mercy. Now, here they are saying, Lord, Lord, uh, have mercy on us, son of David. What is the response of all the crowds to these blind men crying out? Be quiet. Don't you know who he is? You need to be quiet. You guys are relegated to the sidelines. You're outcasts. Nobody cares about you. You're not important. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, the rightful king. He's coming to his throne. Be quiet. Be quiet. 
You're not important. And Jesus stops. What do you want me to do? Well, we want you to heal us. And notice that Jesus doesn't go, well, I'm too important for you. Uh, Don't you know who I am? I'm on a bigger mission. I got bigger fish to fry. I got things to be, places to be and things to do. I got important teaching. I don't have time for you. No, no. Please love the words of verse 34 in compassion or in pity. He cared about these people. And what Jesus does is he uses his authority not to be dismissive. Not to say, don't you know who I am? But to serve them too. It's the evidence of the teaching. He proved it in how he lived. He is God himself. In the flesh. On the earth. Stopping and talking and healing people that the crowds don't want to talk to or want to hear from. There's no one unimportant to Jesus. And he will even serve the outcasts that the crowds don't want to deal with. All right. Two big points for our lesson and then the message will be yours. This whole paragraph begins in verse 17 and carries all the way through to the end of the chapter in a message about greatness. James and John want greatness in the kingdom with Jesus. They want to sit on the right hand and the left hand. What Jesus does is he explains two important messages about greatness. Number one, kingdom greatness requires following Jesus in his suffering. You want to belong with Jesus and you want greatness in the kingdom of heaven. You want to enjoy eternal glory. Then you have to be willing to drink the cup that Jesus drank. You have to be willing to go through rejection and mocking. You have to be willing to go through physical suffering. You have to be willing to even lay down your life to be able to enjoy the eternal glory that has been promised to us. And the New Testament constantly says this. I'll give you two places, like Romans chapter 8 and verse 17, where here the Apostle Paul says, If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. I want the period to start right there. We're children and we're heirs with Christ, period. Don't say anything more, Paul. If, indeed, we share in his sufferings. We're children, and we are co-heirs with him, and we're going to enjoy eternal glory beyond all comparison if we share in his sufferings. And we share in his sufferings, Paul says, in order that we might share in his glory. The question that Jesus asked to these two disciples, and I said, please put yourself in in their shoes. You don't have to. He's holding the cup out to you and asking the question. Can you drink the cup that I drink? Are you willing to go through hardships and suffering and loss for the cause of Christ? And the Apostle Paul reminded us of that. 
Our suffering is light and temporary, but it's producing for us an eternal glory greater anything than we can imagine. There is this immeasurable glory that is awaiting us if we will carry through the suffering, if we'll drink the cup and hold fast to our faith, that we can join him in eternity. And number two, Kingdom greatness not only is required to follow Jesus in his suffering, but it also require, is requiring us to follow Jesus in his service. Our interactions with people should not look like anything that the world does with its interactions. We are to be a people who show how authority is supposed to be used. I mean, think about that. We are the opportunity to show the world how glory and authority and power are supposed to be used. And if it's on the job and it's how we treat others and serve others, even with the authority that we have. If it's in the home as husbands or as wives or as children or as parents, we are using whatever authority we have as a means of service as God would want us to. It's supposed to be seen in the church as shepherds and teachers and deacons. How we treat one another, we serve one another. Kingdom greatness requires following Jesus in the way that he served. Jesus does not walk around going, don't you know who I am and the authority I have? Let's, let's see you serve me. And yet stunningly, how often Christians can say, well, don't you know the authority I have? You need to be doing it. Serve me. Jesus did not come to be served. But to serve and to give his life for you. And so I will end the lesson by saying, please keep this at the forefront of your minds with every interaction you have with people. Keep this at the forefront of your mind when you're interacting with people Monday through Friday. Keep this interaction in your mind when you're interacting within the body of Christ. Keep this interaction in, within your mind, whatever your interaction is in your family. In every place, Jesus is saying our mission is to serve. We give ourselves for others. We do not seize authority and we do not use it for our own selfish purposes. And so I end by asking you, will you drink the cup that Jesus suffered? And will you serve like Jesus served? Only then can we enjoy the eternal glory that's waiting for us. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our Savior who shows such immense humility, such immense gentleness, and such immense self-control. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your son that showed us the way to serve. Lord, thank you for your son that showed us that it's not about putting ourselves first. 
but instead serving and making ourselves last. Lord, please forgive us for the times where we have misused our authority, when we have misused power, when we have taken these things upon ourselves to make other people do what we want them to do. Forgive us, Lord. Lord, help us to have a mind that that is the way the world thinks, but not how we ought to think as we belong to you. Lord, help us to use all of the glory we may enjoy and all the power you may bestow upon us and all the authority we may have as a means to serve other people. Help us to be lights in the world as we do it. Help us to show the world that your way is far superior and that we use every gift that you have given to us and every role that you have given to us and every purpose to serve one another. Help us in that effort, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a mind that is ready to suffer. Lord, help us to not be shy or to recoil or to be ashamed of our faith in you. Lord, help us to be ready to suffer mistreatment and mocking and shame. And forgive us, Lord, for the times where we have allowed that to motivate us in such a way that we have not proclaimed who we are or proclaimed your gospel or proclaimed who you are. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love and your grace. And help us to be the suffering servant that you want us to be, just like your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.